Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 is where we're going to start. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so much so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So first thing, um, I guess I should be looking at what you have as well, so I know what, what you have. I'm going to read you a quote from Kenneth Wiest in his uh, book on, the, on Philippians. He writes about the word, therefore. And he says this, he says, Therefore, my beloved, goes back to chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul's presence and absence are referred to as in this verse. In 127, we have Paul's exhortation to the Philippian saints to conduct themselves as citizens of heaven should. Then the apostle singles out one of the obligations of a citizen of heaven, that of living in harmony and unity with his fellow saints. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he gives reasons why they should live in unity together and further develops the theme of Christian unity. And now, in verses 12 and 13, the apostle exhorts these saints to make the humility and self-abnegation, which is self-surrender, self-denial, and self-renunciation, exhibited by the Lord Jesus, a fact in their own lives. So again, everything that Paul's been saying, and, and you'll see that as you read through all of his epistles, and you see that throughout the Bible, when you have the word, therefore, they're always referring back to the point they've been making or that they've been developing. And the idea is, so because that's true, then this should take place, or this is true, um, or you should be living this way. And so, once again, what Paul gets to here, which we must always remember that when it comes to the Christian life, believing in the gospel, and I don't, just think about this for a minute. Believing in the gospel we know, is what makes you a Christian. At the same time, only believing in the gospel doesn't make you a Christian. Okay? For us to acknowledge that the gospel is true, that's not salvation. The devil knows the gospel is true. We are to place our faith in the work of Christ. We are believing in that. We're trusting in that. What's, and what's implied with that, and you see this throughout the scripture, is that when I put my trust in that, I am, in essence, surrendering my life, my, my whole life, my mind, the way I think, my will, to the truth of what God says. So the truth of the gospel is not just, oh, Jesus died for your sin. Why did Jesus die for our sin? We're separated from God. So the solution was to deal with our sin. So I'm not just intellectually acknowledging, oh, yeah, I've done wrong. The idea is, no, my entire life is wrong. I have, I've born, I'm born in sin, I live in rebellion, and that I need to be reconciled to God. So it's not just I need to be forgiven so I can be guilt-free. I need to be reconciled to God so I, can, so I can be in a right relationship with him. Because I'm not in a right relationship with him, everything in my life is out of whack. So that puts everything in my life in proper perspective because I'm now aligned with who God is. So we want to make sure that we always recognize that there's this very uh, intricate, there's a marriage between the truth of the gospel and really living uh, out the truth of the gospel or living um, in light of the gospel. 
Because I believe in Christ, I then, I'm to live in a particular way. Uh, I am to be a certain way. And when it comes to being a certain way, it's not just being able to obey certain commands. The outward obedience is obviously really important. But again, what Paul is working through here is it's both the inner and the outer man. It's what's going on inside as well as outside. It's not just obedience, it's my attitude as well. The way that I, it's not just what I think, it's the way that I think. Um, it's, not, it's, it's not even only just the way I feel about individuals, it's why I feel a certain way and why I don't feel other ways. There's all this stuff that's going on here. So he really is talking about the whole man. Uh, and when he gets to this, this passage here, he wants him to understand the intricacy of God's involvement in our life. That's really what we're going to be exposing here. So as you, as you go through your notes, there's a summary of some of the previous statements that Paul has made concerning the uh, believers in Philippi. So all of this has to do with working out their salvation. All right? And we'll get to the nitty-gritty of what he means by that in a moment. But let's look at these things that are, that are bullet-pointed for you. Number one, he's talked about our conduct. All right, again, the conduct he speaks of is in the present imperative. All right, that's a Greek, a way to describe the Greek verb, which means this is continually. So we are to conduct ourselves continuously in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, in other words, it's a supernatural conduct which is in keeping with the supernatural power of the gospel. So again, remember, we've mentioned this before, that when it comes to religion in, during the days of Paul, there were no religions that the people were familiar with that demanded that you live anyway, in any kind of way. There, were, there was never any moral demands. If you believed in Venus or you, or you worshiped the god Bacchus, who was the god of wine, there was no moral requirement for you at all. Right? You want to worship uh, the god of wine, you go and you would pay money, and then you would basically drink till you were drunk, and depending on what time of year it was, they might have temple prostitutes, they may not, uh, but all the temple was concerned about was making wine and making money. Uh, and so you, this god that you were honoring, there was, there was nothing to be said about your marriage, about your kids, about work ethic, there was none of that. All right, if you worship Venus, or any of the fertility gods. Same thing. You would go through a ritual trying to get the favor of the gods. But again, those gods made no statement about how you should be honest with people or how you should treat people. That, just, that didn't exist. So Judaism comes along, and then later on Christianity comes along. Now we have this, this religion presented where God is not just a God who demands sacrifice, which God does, and that we deal with our sin, but he, he's demanding an obedience concerning every aspect of our life. He's concerned about the way we live, what we do, why we do it. Um, and he understands, obviously, that we have this great difficulty because of sin. And again, it goes back to the gospel. Christ has helped us to overcome sin and the power of sin. And so here, the command then is now you need to conduct yourself on a regular basis, in a way that reveals the, the value that you place on the gospel. Secondly, Paul said, make my joy complete. All right? That's the aorist imperative. That means don't delay. Do this now and do it effectively. 
All right, so he says, make my joy complete <coughs> in chapter 2, verse 2, by being of the same mind. So he writes to the church, and he wants all of the believers to together be in on this. All of us, so as a, as a body of believers, you may not have always you may not always think about this, but all of us together are, are to be committed to what the Bible says. So we are automatically all under the same accountability to obey what the Bible says about unity, loving each other, caring for each other, forgiving each other, helping each other, all that kind of stuff. All right? we're all, and we're all under that responsibility. We have that responsibility to each other. And so Paul tells these believers, look, you need to be of the same mind. This is not every man for himself. Right? In the pagan religions, it was. If I can get the gods to favor my crops, I don't really care what happens to your crops, as long as I'm blessed. Within Christianity, it's not that way. Right? There's to be this concern that we have for our fellow man. Then thirdly, he says, literally, do nothing from selfishness, period. All right, so now, once again, a new way of living. And no one ever thought like this before. Uh, and if you think about it, it's pretty difficult to um, commit any sin without being selfish. Selfishness kind of lies. Self lies at the center of our difficulties. And so he says, don't do anything from selfishness. We should always be considering others. Now, again, he's made it clear, as we talked about last week, he's not telling you to not be concerned about your leaky roof and making sure you have food on the table for you and your family. You're supposed to be concerned about all those things. But that's not the only thing you live for. You're not only concerned about what's yours. You know, there's a we in all of this, especially when it comes <coughs> to the household of, <coughs> household of God. <coughs> Excuse me. As I said Sunday, I know that can be kind of irritating. It's irritating to me. Anyway. All right. Then, fourthly, he says, let each of you regard, again, that's, that's to be our ongoing attitude, to regard one another as more important than yourself. So again, he's not saying that others are more important, but the idea is this. If I am thinking, my attitude towards other people, that they are more important than me, then that's going to be seen in the way that I treat them, the way that I talk to them. Just my, my attitude towards them is going to be very different. If everybody's living that way, then there's going to be a lot of uh, good things happening. There's a lot of harmony, a lot of, a lot of cooperation, because we've eliminated the number one problem that, that society has, which is selfishness. Um, and so, again, all of us are to be on the same page. All of us as Christians are to be <coughs> thinking this way. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I, have, I have one. It, I don't know how helpful it will be, but we'll see. <coughs> the, the, the only thing that irritates me is talking. <laughs> All right, after that, on, page, on the next page, <coughs> I guess for you it's not the next page, it's the next one down. Again, he, he kind of adds to that. It says, don't really look out for your own personal interests. So again, this, there's this mindset of how we are to be thinking and living And then he ends in verse 5. Again, this is all a review. That we are to have this attitude. It's the same attitude that was in Christ. So Christ was set up as the example. 
How did Christ live? What was his mindset when he came? And his concern was accomplishing the will of the Father and doing what was right and doing what was good for others. And that's, that's the outlook that we are to have. He came, <coughs> he came to serve others. So if we're seeking to serve others, <coughs> man, sorry about that. Um, then, then the Christian life is going to be pleasing to the Lord. And again, that's what he's, that's what he's trying to get at. So, D.A. Carson is, if you ever have a chance to, to go online and find some of his sermons, uh, D.A. Carson is excellent uh, to listen to. His stuff is always, the, con, the content is always terrific. Uh, he's a French-Canadian. His voice is uh, a little high, just so you know. It's not, it's not bad. Uh, but his sermons are very thick in, uh, in the content. And so it's, it's good to listen to. He's an academic. However, uh, when he explains the scripture, you can understand, you can clearly understand him. Uh, just you know, he's one of those guys, he reads literally cover to cover about 500 books a year. It's insane. And he skims another 200. And he probably has an 80% recall. So he's very well read, very well studied. All right? So that means then that he brings up, uh, it doesn't mean everything he says is right, right. But what it means is he's taking the gifting that God has given him and he's using it for basically the, the purpose of, of improving the church in knowledge of scripture. And so you know, he's, he's able to read passages and he knows pretty much what everybody's saying about him. And as he dives into it to make sure we uncover what the truth is and, and what it doesn't say, because sometimes scripture is twisted by a lot of people. So his stuff is really very good. And he says that it's vitally important for us to grasp the connection between God's sovereignty and our responsibility in verses 12 and 13. All right, so you may not have thought about that, but look at verses 12 and 13 again, because that's what Paul is going to be dealing with, because it's vital for us to grasp that um, relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility uh, to obey God and do what he says. So again, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So this is where the, the tension is. I'm to work out my own salvation. I'm to do so with fear and trembling, what all this will explain. And then he, but then he adds, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So somebody could read that and say, wait a minute. If I'm to work at my own salvation, then why are you saying that it's God that works in me? You know, how does that, how does that, how does that, how does that work together? Well, that's what we need to think about. All right, so in your notes... A couple of things that the text is not saying, because some people have misunderstood um, what Paul is getting at. Number one, the text does not say work to acquire your salvation, for God has done his bit, and now it's all up to you. Right? So that's never, that's never communicated in the scripture. All right? Salvation is always this gift that God has given us, and there is nothing that you can do to earn it or to put yourself in a better position to get it. It's, all, it's received the same by all of us, regardless of our background. 
we come to God by faith, which simply means we are believing what the scripture says about what Christ has done. I'm believing, I'm trusting that is true. I'm putting all my marbles in that basket. Right? That's, that's the faith that we're, that we're putting in the gospel. That's the faith that we're, we're putting in the God. So there's, um, so there's no human effort that anyone can make that's going to make them more savable or save us. And even though that's repeated a great deal in many churches, you ask many people, when they die, where they go to heaven, and they'll answer, I hope so. And then you say, well, what makes you think you'll make it? And they say, well, I hope my good works outweigh my bad. So what are they trusting in? Their works, their ability to do enough good to somehow earn salvation or put themselves in a better position to receive this favor from God. And God has made sure that we understand that that can't be done. It can never be done. Um, all kind of illustrations about that, but the bottom line would be this. If I told you, look, I have a, a secret knowledge, and I know that there actually is an old law which if you, if you accomplish this one thing, you will inherit the Hawaiian Islands, and it would be your personal possession. You only have to do one thing. You have to leave California and swim to the islands, and if you can do that successfully, the Hawaiian Islands all belong to you. So, some will make it 100 yards, and they'll start to drown. Some may make it several miles, but in the end, how many people are gonna fall short? Everyone. No one. It's, just, it's an impossibility. It doesn't matter how far you get. You're, it's an all or nothing proposition. So when it comes to salvation, God just wants us to understand the reality of the situation. What's required for heaven is a righteousness that Christ possesses himself. So all you have to do is have that kind of righteousness and you'll make it. How do you, how do you get that? Well, you, you can't. That's why we trust in Christ. And what does he do? He, he imputes his righteousness to us. So I now possess his righteousness. And so that's how I'm going to heaven. Secondly, the text does not say that you may, you may already have your salvation, but now perseverance in it depends entirely on you. So we are to persevere in the faith. But you and I living in obedience to the word of God is not going to keep you saved. We stay saved because God keeps us saved. In the same way that we can't earn salvation, we can never obey enough commands or be good enough on our own to remain saved. If it was up to us, we would probably all lose our salvation in about 10 seconds. All right, so, it's, it's, so that's not what he's telling us to do here. All right, thirdly, the text does not say let go and let God. Just relax and the Spirit of God will carry you. So when it comes to salvation, that's not the approach of the Christian life. I know it's a popular sent sentiment. <coughs> Sometimes people can give heartwarming stories of how they just, they let go and let God. I understand to a degree, sometimes individuals will say, well, I just, you just got to let go of your problems and let God. Well, yes and no. The idea is that God, when it comes to living the Christian life, it's God wants us to take his hand and, and, and live the Christian life. He, he's, he is going to help us. He's there to encourage us, 
to guide us, to direct us, and to empower us to do that. It's similar to this, when your kids are real young and they mess up their room and you're trying to teach them the responsibility of keeping their room clean and you tell them that they need to clean their room. Sometimes, you know, the kids, don't really, not only do they not do a good job, sometimes they might, not, they might not even try because it's just overwhelming. And you can go and scream all you want at them and you can threaten them and it's, just, it's not going to get done or it's not going to be done very well. But it's amazing what will happen if you tell your kids, you, know, you, you got to clean the room and, and it has to be done right. The clothes have to all be folded and put back in the drawers. All the toys have got to go back in the right box. Your bed has to be made, you know, on, on, and on. Daddy's going to help you do it or mommy's going to help you do it. Now it's all different, right? Now are they working? Certainly they are. Could they get that room cleaner by themselves, even working like that? Nope, because it's still way beyond their ability. Right? They have to have your help. But you two working together, they have that sense of accomplishment. They're able to accomplish what you want them to do. All right? So when it comes to living the Christian life, God is demanding that we live a particular way. He knows that what he's asking us to do, we are unable to do on our own. You can't do it. All right? But we can with his help, through his help, through his enablement. And that's what Paul, again, is getting at and what he wants us to know. So rather, Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, precisely because God is working in us both to will and to act according to his good purpose. So the idea is, is that because God is working in me, that then should motivate me then to get busy and do what needs to be done. God is, God's not left me out on an island and says, you just need to do this. All right? No, it's, it's because, again, it's an impossible task. But he's, he's, he's going to do it through us. He's going to do it with us. And he's working in us to, to change our hearts, to give us the strength that we need, to give us the wisdom. And all, that's all this ongoing work so that we can accomplish these things that God wants us to accomplish. So again, God is not just merely working to strengthen us in our willing and acting. Paul's language is stronger than that. God himself is working in us both to will and to act. He works in us at the level of our wills and at the level of our doing. But far from this being a distinctive to press on, Paul Paul, I mean, this incentive to press on, Paul insists that this is an incentive. Assured as we are that God works in this way in his people, we should be all the more strongly resolved to will and to act in ways that please our master. So again, back to the idea of you helping your kid clean the room. All right? So when it comes to, let's say, making the bed, and they have to lift the corner of the bed to tuck in the sheets, again, you're working with them, helping them to lift and tuck in the sheet. All right? You may already know you're doing most of the lifting, but they're trying, you know, they're, you know, whatever. And the idea is that as you work, I guess you would say synergistically, all right, they are participating and they really are doing the work. So it's not a game that God is playing. God isn't just doing this so you can feel like you're a part of the family kind of a thing, right? God is doing this because he really wants that transformation to take place in us but he knows that he can't leave us alone and he's not going to leave us alone and all of that. So 
what we need to think about from time to time is that when it comes to our Christian life, or maybe some area in your Christian life where things are difficult, remember that when God has commanded you and I to love others, and there are some people that can be difficult to love, God is not just standing at the end of the room with his arms folded across his chest and demanding that you love them no matter what. God is at, the, at that time filling your heart with his love, giving you the capacity and the ability to love that individual, not with your love, but with the love he's given to you. And is enabling you to become that kind of person because God loves you in the same way he is demanding that you love that individual. So it's not, again, it's not just you need to do it or you're in trouble. All right, it's this. And so we need to think about that because when you think about it that way, then what excuse do you and I have when we don't obey God? We can never say, well, you know, it's just too hard. No, he's, he's there, he's working in us. He's the one that's going to help us to accomplish this. He, whatever we need, he's going to give us. He, he continues to tell us that in the scripture. And so Paul writes this to these Philippians so they recognize, uh, again, this relationship they have with God, this intimate relationship that uh, is able to produce these things in life, which will, which will bring about really a great sense of peace, uh, a great sense of satisfaction, uh, a great sense of, of the fact that you, you belong to God, you belong to the family of God. Um, there are many, many, I guess I would call those things psychological benefits. When I say psychological, I don't mean that psychological in an empty way, but, but in a very real way. We all, you know, we should understand that you know, we have emotional needs, we have, I don't know if there's how much of a difference is between psychological needs and emotional needs, maybe they're the same, but those are very real needs that we have. And if we try to get those needs and have those needs met through other people, it's going to get us in trouble. Now God will provide people for us to help give us some of those things and meet our needs, but he's not leaving us to that. God is all-encompassing when it comes to our whole life. And he knows that if you, are, if you and I are only depending upon other people or another person to find that great sense of fulfillment in life, you're not going to have it. There's going to be a lot of frustration. Right? God is going to provide that for us through his work in us as well as people that he brings into our life. Right? He's, not, he's not cutting people out of this thing. It's just all-inclusive. But even though I need people in my life, sometimes I can drive people away. Right? Sometimes, or they can be irritating, or I can be irritating, or whatever. Right? God, as he works in us, is enabling us for all these things to work out the way they're supposed to as we continually overcome sin. And the way we do that is to go back to what he's told us to do. What? We, make the, we have the same mindset that we don't do anything out of selfishness, that we consider other people to be much more important than us, and by treating them that way and looking out for their interests as well as ours, then that's all those things that we want in life are going to be generated and the things that God wants for us. When he says work out, uh, I, I have uh, the definition is, is from a, a, a theological word dictionary of the New Testament. So the word work out, which says work out your salvation, is katergazomai, uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a compound word in the Greek language, so the first three letters, K-A-T, uh, cat, comes from kata, 
which, which intensifies the meaning of the verb. The verb is ergazomai, which means labor or work. So Paul puts those two things together so that, he, that we understand that God wants us to work out fully, to work out thoroughly, to seek to accomplish or to achieve um, or, or to finish to its conclusion this work that God's given us, which again is the, the completion of salvation. So the completion of salvation is not that I become more saved, because I'm already completely saved, but so that it permeates me as an individual. Right? So it permeates my whole life. So that my heart, my mind, my attitudes, my speech, everything I do is, is permeated with the person of Jesus Christ. So I become, like, I become like Jesus Christ in the way that I treat other people, in the way that I approach life, in the way that I live life. And, and that's accomplished by me, by me putting forth this effort and working hard at that. So we need to have an awareness of our lives as Christians. There's this idea that we are from time to time to examine our lives as Christians. We are to ask ourselves, how am I doing as a Christian? Am I continuing to grow as a Christian? Uh, am I more lo loving as a Christian? Uh, am I more loving of my, of my, in other words, you know, don't take the people you already like. Like for me to say, well, do I love Cindy more? Well, it would be kind of easy. She's my wife and I love her, so it's not, that's not a hard thing. All right, so I have to find somebody I'm having a hard time loving. Maybe somebody I don't even like. All right, so now as a Christian, I already know who, I know who that person is. Has my heart changed towards that person? If it hasn't, what's wrong? What's going on? Why has my heart not changed? Do I not think it's important? Do, do I think that God doesn't care? Or is it just I just don't want to because I don't care? All right, there's, I'm the one that's guilty in all of this. God is the one who's demanding. He's telling me that I, I need to be different. He is working in me, doing all these things to bring this about. So what's my excuse? I'm to be working my salvation out in fear and trembling. So I'm, I'm, the, I'm to make sure there's this thoroughness when it comes to uh, living in, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that means I need to do something uh, that's going to bring about results. Um, so again, working out their salvation is a way of saying that they are to keep obeying. You keep obeying what the Word of God says. Work out, again, is in the present imperative. So that means uh, it's a reminder that we cannot even obey this without the Spirit enabling us. So, you know, we've always, I've always mentioned that we, we, we often end up going back to thinking about the simple spiritual disciplines of life, which again is spending time in the Word, spending time in prayer, spending time with believers. Okay? Those three things are important. We have to have those. In the same way that you have to have food for your body to function, and even when it comes to food, hopefully you know you just can't eat the same thing all the time. Uh, because if you do, you're going to have problems. Uh, you know, like if you, if you say, I really love baked potatoes, so I'm only going to eat baked potatoes. Well, you may be okay for a couple of days. You might even be okay for a couple of weeks. But you do that for a couple of years, you're going to have some problems. Uh, especially if you're a kid. Uh, there's going to be some difficulties in your, in your growth uh, because you're not getting the protein that you need. All right, so everybody knows there has to be some kind of balance. So if you have baked potato a lot, that's fine. At least have a few Twinkies. No, 
I'm teasing. You need to have, you know, some vegetables, some meat, whatever. All right? So the idea, though, is, is that uh, these things enable my body to do what it's supposed to do. Right? Because you can't make your body grow on its own. You've got to have these things. So when it comes to spiritual disciplines, all right, I need the Spirit of God to enable me to pursue obedience to what Christ has said. How is that going to happen? It doesn't happen because I just say I want it to. You may hear a really encouraging message or maybe an inspiring message and say, yeah, I'm, from starting tomorrow, man, I'm obeying everything God says. And that lasts maybe a few hours. And if you're really good, a couple days. All right, but that's all that lasts because we're human beings. All right, so in the same way that, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, this would be kind of foolish, but it would be kind of funny if, if your kid came up to you and say, you know, your son says he's, he's eight years old, he says, Dad, I want to be six foot four. And we're not going to explain to him that genetics has a lot to play with that. And, but anyway, I say, well, you know, if you eat right, you'll be as tall as you're supposed to be. He says, starting tomorrow, man, I'm doing it. I'm eating vegetables. I'm eating fruit. I'm eating meat. I'm going to do it. All right. Okay, he's determined. All right, but no matter how determined he is, he can't make himself grow. All right? But his body's enabled to grow by the fuel he gives it. All right? So when it comes to wanting to follow what God says, we can all be determined to do that. But the flesh is weak, and we can't do that. So the way that we remain motivated, the way that we remain strong or energized is by spending time in the Word, spending time in prayer, and spending time with other believers. We do that when we gather for Bible study. We do that when we gather for worship. We do that when we gather for fun, when we gather the believers for fun. It's, it's good to be with other believers. Um, you know, we have, we got this oyster roast coming up, right? It's fun. You know, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not there saying, okay, now that you have your oysters, everybody has to memorize 100 verses or you can't go home. You know, we're not doing that. All right, but the idea is, is we're just sharing in a common life together, you know, because we all know that we sometimes need a break from the pressures of the world. Not a break from Christianity, but a, but a break from the pressures of the world. And being with like-minded people, that, that is, that's what that does for us. It's like when you come home with your family, all right? We're like-minded people. We all are in the same boat. We know what the difficulties are. We know that we're accepted by each other. We can relax with each other. And it, it's supposed to be refreshing. All right? So same thing when it comes to, to believers. So our gathering with believers is important. And again, time with prayer, time with the Word. Time with the Word is, is you reading the Word on your own. But it's also as we gather together and we study the Word of God. Uh, all those things are important as we are, we're feeding our soul and that is, it's not a secret, but, but, but that's, that's the, the formula that God has given us. It's a simple formula. Whether a person has a PhD or um, has a low IQ, you can read the Bible. If you have a low IQ, you may not get as much from your Bible reading as someone with a high IQ, but you're still getting something from the Bible. And God, the Holy Spirit's going to help us. And it's not based on how much you can get in just one hour. It's doing it on a regular basis, you know, for the rest of your life. It's just a simple, it's a simple thing. It doesn't have to be a big burden. And so we spend time in the Word, time in prayer, um, and then we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be enabled by the, by the Spirit of God to pursue these things. So that truth then would always keep us humble because we know that whatever we are able to accomplish in our lives as Christians is not because we're great. Because right? we're not great, that's for sure. 
All right? What's interesting is in the Greek language, when you read this verse, he says, work out your own salvation of fear and trembling. The words fear and trembling in the Greek is first. All right, so in the Greek language, um, sometimes, oftentimes, the most important uh, point or the most important subject in the sentence, that's the first words in the sentence. That's where the emphasis is. So the emphasis is on fear and trembling. Uh, the Greek words is phobos, which is fear. That's where we get our word phobia from. Uh, trembling is traumas. Uh, and so that's the attitude that we are to have. So Paul is saying that we need to have a proper heart and a, and a proper mind or proper mindset, proper attitude, and then carry out the action of working out our salvation thoroughly and to completion. So how we think about God will always influence how we act before him. So we are to have this, this reverence for God, this respect for God, and because we recognize what God has done for us and that we don't deserve it and uh, you know, who God is, that almost, that not almost, every single thing that we have and our ability to live is all dependent upon God's will because, because God wills it, right? Just so you know, know this, as of right this right moment, it is God's will that all of us be alive. Because if it wasn't, we'd be dead. Right? God is so powerful that he's not, he doesn't have to think it. He doesn't have to think, I want Reggie to live. He's not thinking that. His presence is so powerful that his presence is what makes everything work. Alright? This is an amazing thing. And so Paul says he wants you to think about that. And, and that that establishes the mindset, the proper humble attitude we have in moving forward. So in your notes, I, I have put down those two verses in the Amplified. And this is one of those, you know, I've mentioned, I, I read a lot from the Amplified because I think it does a good job in amplifying what is being meant. It doesn't always, sometimes it does mess up. But this is one of those places where I think it helps a great deal. So follow along as you read through uh, the Amplified of these two verses. Therefore, my dear ones, as you have always obeyed, so now not only with the enthusiasm you would show in my presence, but much more because I am absent, work out or cultivate, carry out to the goal, and fully complete your own salvation with reverence and awe and trembling. So the reverence and awe and trembling, how does that translate into the attitudes I am to have? Well, he tells us. It is self-distrust with serious caution, tenderness of conscience, watchfulness against temptation, timidly shrinking from whatever might offend God and discredit the name of Christ. That's a, that's a huge mouthful. But that is the intent that Paul has when he says to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. It's all about our attitude towards both God and ourself in relation to this whole thing. So... It may not be popular among uh, positive thinkers, but we all begin with this idea that you cannot trust yourself. Right? We know we can mislead ourselves. So, you know, the world says follow your heart. The Bible says don't ever do that. Don't follow your heart. It's going to get you in trouble. Okay? Um, you follow what the scripture says. So, 
So we have this, uh, well, what I, I call it a healthy self-distrust. So this is not where you walk around like I'm a worm and I can't, I can't do anything right because I'm just an, an irresponsible imbecile. That's not what that says. All right, this, the assumption here is there's this uh, uh, healthy understanding that you know that you are created in the image of God, that you have value as a person because you created the image of God. God has given all of us certain abilities and gifting, but he's also given every single one of us the same abilities in the sense of being able to handle certain responsibilities uh, about ourselves. And, and we, we, but we, we understand that you can't rely on yourself in this way. Again, we, we have self-distrust with serious caution, all right? So we want to have a tender conscience, a tender conscience towards God and the things of God and thinking his way. And again, we are watchful against temptation. So we're aware that temptation can come at any time. And then we want to timidly shrink. We want, we want to kind of move away from anything that might offend God or anything that might discredit Christ. That's the mindset that we are to have as we seek to work out our salvation. Then verse 13, he reminds us, this is not in your own strength, for it is God who is all the while effectually at work in you. He is energizing and creating in you the power and desire, both to will and to work for his good pleasure and satisfaction and delight. So, if you find in your life as a Christian, that you lack spiritual motivation. You just, you're not motivated to think in this way. You're not motivated to, to uh, <coughs> read the scripture. And it's not always about raw, raw kind of stuff. You're just not motivated. Uh, you find yourself kind of in a lull. Normally, the reason for that is because God is not the one that's working in you. See, God works in us and creates that, so that reflects where I am spiritually. So when someone says, it's now, again, when I, I'm speaking in generalities, because, you know, there's sometimes exceptions to the rule. But when someone says, you know, Bob, I just, I don't know what it is. I don't feel like going to church anymore. I don't really feel like reading my Bible anymore. I have a hard time praying. Normally, what that reflects is before you felt that way, you'd already stopped doing those things. You see? Why is it you don't feel like going to church now? Because you, you weren't before or you were just going through the motions. I don't really feel like reading the Word anymore. It just doesn't excite me. That's because you'd already drifted away. You'd already stopped reading the Scripture. You'd, you'd already stopped paying attention. All right? So the idea is it's kind of like this is what happens to an individual. You know, when, when, you, when you skip a meal, you, you get hungry. All right? If you ever try... You know, people do different, you know, there's people who try fasting. And if you ever try fasting, uh, often, depends on who you are, like to say, today I'm going to fast. So I don't eat breakfast. I don't eat lunch. In fact, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat till tomorrow morning. It comes time for dinner, and all you can think about is food. Right? Because you just, you just, you want to eat. All right? So, but if you're successful in going and getting through that first day, and maybe for some people it's the first two days. But there, there's a point to where that really strong desire for food, it goes away. And you're actually okay. You, you don't really feel, you don't feel famished. You're not feeling hungry all the time. Uh, uh, so I'm not sure, all, I'm sure there's a physiological reason for all that kind of a thing. Uh, but when I've tried it before, I've noticed that. You know, that when it comes to 
you know, you've missed certain meals, and man, I, I just, I'm ready to eat an entire package of Oreos uh, or whatever. Uh, but the thing is, is that when you get past a certain point, it's like, well, I'm not really, I don't really feel that hungry. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with that. And it's probably healthier for us to eat less anyway. But the idea is, is that it, it, that's what takes place. So when, when, uh, when it comes to spiritual hunger, normally when you feed your soul those disciplines we talked about, it increases your appetite for the things of God. When you, when you skip those things, you lose your desire uh, for those things of God. And so that's why Paul writes this. Some have said that verses 12 and 13 are some of the most important verses. Um, you know, there's always going to be a set of verses that certain people say are the most important. And that may be one of them, uh, just because of how it emphasizes what we are responsible to do as Christians, but at the same time what God is doing in us. Because God's not just kind of leaving us alone. He's going to grade us on everything. So look at verse 14. So he's going to begin to go through, again, some very practical things. All right, so you say, okay. So I need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. How am I going to do that? Glad you asked. Paul's going to begin to explain in more detail what you need to do. All right? We already know in general, right? Consider others more important than yourself. Don't, think, don't do anything out of selfishness. This needs to be my continual attitude. I, I need to follow the example of Christ. How, how does that look in practical day-to-day -day living? Number one, do all things without grumbling or questioning. That right there probably could be the theme for the rest of the week, and you'll fail before Thursday, all right? Because it's easy to grumble and complain. Now, let me just say this. This is not saying that if you ever complain about something, it's sin, okay? It's not always sinful to complain. The idea here is if, if, if this is ongoing grumbling, Right, this ongoing complaining, right? That's sinful. All right. So if you reckon, so let's say you have a hard day at work because your boss was a real jerk, it may not be sinful for you to come home and tell your spouse, "Man, I'm glad this day is over. I don't know what's going on with my boss. Maybe he's got marital problems. But man, that guy was a jerk all day." That's not necessarily sinful, but if you complain about your boss every day, now you got a problem. Right, because we, we, we are to rise above that. We, we, aren't, we don't get caught up in that. So we can recognize when things may not be going well. That's okay. But this is not the way we live. We don't live that way. So he's telling us here, you do all things without grumbling or questioning. All right? we, we follow what the scripture says. We follow what our boss says. We follow what our parents say, depending on what your age, you know, that kind of thing. And he tells us why. Why do I need to live my life without grumbling and complaining on a regular basis. Why should I do that? Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. All right, so God already knows that we, are, that we live in the midst of corruption. Right, we live in a pagan world. Right, there's a lot of people, they don't care what God says. They don't, they don't care what's right or wrong. They don't care about it. All right, they care what's right for them. They care what makes them look good, uh, whatever, may whatever it may happen to be. And so he says to them that if you, you know, as you work out your salvation of fear and trembling, and you, and you start doing this thing where you're no longer grumbling, you're not questioning everything everybody says, and you do so with this mindset, so that people will look at you differently. 
right? They, they will view you as being innocent. Innocent simply means this. It doesn't mean that you haven't done anything wrong. Right? The idea of innocent here is that you are devoid of, of alternate motivations. You don't, you don't have another agenda, okay? You don't have your own private agenda. Right? Your, your agenda is, I want to glorify the Lord. And so, in that way, you're going to be viewed as being innocent. People can trust you because they can, they can tell by the way you live, by the way you talk, that you don't have your own agenda going on. Everybody may have, everybody's got their own agenda. The idea is maybe they'll begin to learn that you don't have one, that you really, you really are concerned about others. You really are concerned about what, uh, um, what, what they may need. And so that, that lack of grumbling and questioning goes a long ways uh, when it comes to that. So God wants us to be blameless, so no one can blame us for, well, so they can't say, wait a minute, you can't tell me that I should go to church. You're just like me. You complain every day just like I do. So you take that away from them. You can't be that person. And it's easy to do that. When you're with other people who complain, it's easy to do that. All right? They say one of the fastest ways that people kind of, kind of uh, I'm not sure what the, I don't want to say hook up because now that word means something else. Uh, but the fastest way that kind of people connect is by finding common things to complain about. Like saying, you know, they, you see it all the time. I, I'm not saying, I say you see it all the time in bars. I don't go to bars and do this. <laughs> but the idea is, you know, you know, a guy goes to the bar and he gets a beer. And he, there's another guy that goes to the bar and he gets a beer. And so they're going to start complaining about either their lousy football team. Like, imagine if they were Dallas Cowboy fans. Oh, my goodness. You know, they would become best friends within 30 seconds because there is so much to complain about. Right, brother? <laughs> All right. Because they choked again, <laughs> but the idea, <laughs> but the idea is, is they would they would make that connection, all right? Or maybe it's politics, or whether it's local politics, whatever. There's that complaining, and and we connect. But when you connect in that way by the complaining, when that happens, it takes away our ability. We're no longer different than anybody else, and so we can't. Now again, that doesn't mean that you. That if someone's complaining about politics, you're not the guys who, oh no, I think our government's doing a wonderful job. It's not you don't become a liar, all right. But the idea is is that we don't we don't jump in on that whether you're changing the subject or whatever, but you want them to know that you, that you are living differently, and so staying away from the from the chronic, look at it that way, the chronic grumbling and complaining, is what sets you apart. So again. He wants us to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation because God has placed us in the midst of a twisted and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So that's the key. We shine as lights. The light, it's Christ. We represent Christ where we are. Others may not want it. They may not like it. They may not want to hear it. That isn't the point. The point is, is that God has placed us where, we're, where we are so we will shine as lights, and we, we need to, uh, and the way we do that is he doesn't say that you're standing on a soapbox preaching. He doesn't say you're whacking people in the head with your Bible. No, dude, you're just not complaining. You're just not complaining. And by doing that, right, we're already showing people that there's something that's different that motivates us as individuals. We're operating on a different level, uh, and, and that's what God wants because that then gives us the platform that when we, when we are able to share about Christ, there is some credibility there. Uh, because, again, people will recognize that we're, we're different. When people think that you're just like them, 
it's difficult for them to have any respect for what you say about spiritual truth. They may not say it, but, but it's hard for them. They're just going to disregard what you say. But when people are different, even if they outwardly act like they don't like it, and, and maybe they, man, there's always going to be those who don't, because they, just don't, they hate Christ, and so they, they're not going to want it anyway. But the only way we're going to gain any credibility is by being different people. Uh, and, and that lends us that. And the Lord take care of all the rest. But this is where it begins. So again, and then he tells us in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. So again, what are we holding on to? All right, we're not holding on to the circumstance of the world. We're holding on to the scripture, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we, that's what we hold on to. That's how I live my life. That's how I view people. When someone says, I just, our boss is so bad, I can't believe that you, like what are you, phony? Are you trying to, trying to kiss up to our boss because you're so nice? You say, well, no, no, I just, I just know that, you know, I just believe that everybody is, because they're created in the image of God, is, has value. And they may say, oh, you're just kind of whatever. It's okay. If you're consistently living that way, it's going to have an impact on your life. But the most importantly is it pleases God, no matter what they think. It pleases God. And this is what God wants us to do. So we hold fast to the word of life. Why? So that in the day of Christ, that's when the Lord returns, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul says that when Christ comes, he wants them to live this way because he wants to be proud that what he did in this city with these people wasn't for nothing. He wants her to be fruit from his ministry. And <coughs> the fruit from his ministry is the way these people are living. That's what he, that's what he wants. And, and he, he wants to know that it wasn't for nothing, uh, that, there's, that there is uh, uh, something to show for that. Verse 17, then he says this, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So what does he mean, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering? So the Philippians are going to be going through the same kinds of things that Paul's going through. Paul's in prison when he writes this. He's gone through persecution. He knows that, that they're facing difficulty and are going to face more difficulty. So in a sense, they're all in this together. Even as believers, we're all, even though there's different levels of persecution, and some of you may experience more than others, we're all in this together. And so what Paul is saying, he says, look, even if I'm just dumped out like a, a drink offering, just boom, it's gone. All right? He says, I'm fine with that. I'm okay with that. It's not about who suffers more, who gets the glory, who gets, he goes, I don't care. He goes, if I'm sacrificed that way by God <coughs> for your benefit, I'm good with that. Because he so desperately wants them. See, he wants them to possess what he possesses. He knows who Christ is. He's got that really strong relation with Christ. He's got this overwhelming sense of peace, this incredible sense of purpose. You know, he's able to close his eyes every night and rest. He, he, he's not worried about anything uh, because of how God has blessed him. And so he, he wants them to experience the same thing. So it's, it's not a contest. It's not who's going to suffer the most or who can brag about suffering. It doesn't, he doesn't care. And so he says, so if he's, on, if he's kind of on the short end of the stick, <coughs> he's, he's glad about it. And he's going to rejoice. His attitude is, is very genuine here. You know, he's not going to say, you know, yeah, if I'm, if, my, if I'm just poor like a drink off and my whole life is just wasted, I don't know what you guys are doing. But he's not doing that. I have a, a uh, so again, verse 17, 
He is comparing the self-sacrifice that he makes and the energy of the Philippians with his own magnifying what they were going through and he minimizes his own. All right, so what is he exemplifying there? The idea that he thinks of them as being more important than him. Their sacrifice, as far as he's concerned, is greater than his. He's not trying to figure out if it really is or not. It doesn't matter. What does the Bible say? Consider others more important than you are. It didn't say they are more important than you. Just that's your mindset. You consider it that way. So then I'm not ever trying to figure out if I'm suffering more than them or if I'm sacrificing more than them. It doesn't matter. I just, I'm, I'm, whatever the case is, that's God's business. I'm happy for them. And so if others think they've sacrificed and made a bigger sacrifice than me, so be it. He, and that's the thing about Paul. He really, that really is his mindset. He, he really is truly happy with that. And that's what we should strive for. It's a much freer way to live life. When you, when you don't have to worry about any comparisons to anybody, it doesn't matter who gets the credit. With God, he's the one that keeps the books, and he is super accurate, and I got nothing to worry about. And he's going to help me to do these things along the way anyway, so I can, so I can be used by God uh, in the lives of other people and, and have a life that's filled with meaning and purpose and, and love and grace and kindness. And man, this is, life is good. And he's saying all this from prison. He's saying from all this where he's got no freedom at all. You know, he's, he's chained up to a stinking Roman soldier all the time. And they probably were stinking. You know, it's not like everybody took baths every day back during that time. You know, I have, I have no idea what the smell was like, but I think it was just a little different than it is here now. All right, but that, but so, so that's what we are, you know, I, I hope that you'll, you can reread this passage and think about it in those terms. And think about it in terms of your life as a Christian and how you are to live amongst your family, amongst your friends, those in your neighborhood, those at work, and kind of have this unique, this, what I would call a unique spiritual perspective as to what God wants you to do and how he wants you to live. Uh, in that environment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your kindness and grace. We thank you, Lord, again for the words of Paul and what he explains to us here. We pray you help us to recognize, Father, the, the work that you're doing in all of us, even right now. And Father, we're grateful for that. And, and Father, we, we are so happy to know that because, Father, we know that if it was just left up to us, well, we just wouldn't last very long. And, and Father, we know that all these, are, all these things are good for us. We really do want them. Uh, but Father, we desperately need your help. And to know, Lord, that you are with us every step of the way and that you're working in us, even at this moment, to bring these things about. Uh, Father, it encourages our hearts. And even, we, even when we feel like quitting and giving up, it, it gives us a resurgence of energy uh, to keep at it uh, because you're continuing to do the work in us. So Father, we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, even cause us to think of each other and pray for each other in this way. Uh, that, Father, we may all strive for the same thing. Keep us safe, Father, as we go home tonight. As always, we thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.